This is Shame Project is a nonprofit organization that sheds light, builds community, and uplifts the lives of women and non-binary trauma survivors. The way that we do that is through the following trauma-informed programming. We host quarterly SB34 compassionate cannabis donations, quarterly trauma-informed puff and paint events, monthly healing happy hours, as well as our black and white portrait photo activism campaign. You can support This Is Jane Project's work by donating via our website, thisisjaneproject.com. And if you're interested in volunteering, we are also looking for copywriters, website management, as well as members of various committees. If you're interested in any of those positions, please reach out at thisisjaneproject at gmail.com. Welcome to Your Highness Podcast, a show where we get comfortable with the uncomfortable, uncover areas of cannabis where accessibility and inclusiveness are lacking, and elevate conversations about ways to affect real change in this space. Listening to Your Highness Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Crash, and today I am joined by my producer and co-host, J.R. Crash. How are you doing today, J.R.? I am doing well, and hello to everybody out there. How are you doing, Diana? <laughs> you know, I'm very bad at small talk. I'm doing well. Moving on. <laughs> How about this weather? Okay. It's just so crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and sports. <laughs> How about sports teams doing sports teams things at sports games? Yeah. Uh, they're probably doing those things, yep. So, Sporting anyway. about. <laughs> Um, so, because we're not starting this episode off as we normally do, that's why we're having awkward small talk, because usually I have a segment that keeps me from being so awkward in this part. <laughs> but this is not a fun episode, though I do believe you will have fun recording it and we will all learn something. It's not necessarily a fun topic. This is part of our B-series, or I'm sorry, our B-side series, um, which if you're, you know, a Gen Zer, you might not understand what we're saying when we say B-side. We're talking about, like, the other side of the tape or the, or the record. I'm, that's, I'm not that old. I don't, <laughs> I don't listen to records, um, but... <laughs> The concept well, the, the, is the B- that the B-side is... <laughs> you go ahead. The, yeah. The the B-side was generally things that were, were left off of the main studio album. So you would often find them when a band would, say, release a single. Sometimes they would offer a B-side along with that. So you would buy the single, and then with that single, you would get a song that wasn't on the album. And then some bands come out with albums with all their B-sides on it. So essentially this is uh, 
things that aren't a part of our main series still just as awesome and still just as fantastic and great, just delegated to its own specific category. Well, I mean, you did a much better job of explaining it than I did, so that's why I'm glad that I had you join me today. Um, So in our first episode of the B-Side series, we talked about ACE scores, which if you aren't aware, ACE scores are, or rather ACE, I should say, stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. And ACE scores are what you get after you take the survey and every question you answer yes, you get one point. So your ACE score is your cumulative score. Um, And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this episode. This episode in particular, we'll be talking about how trauma impacts your brain. And each episode of our B-Side series so far, we've been talking about trauma and the many different ways that it impacts your life. And because we are not PhD experts (laughs) on the topic, we will be reading from two different articles in this episode. We'll also be followed by a segment with Dr. Rebecca Siegel, who wrote The Brain on Cannabis. We will have the appropriate attribution in the show notes for both of the articles, but both of them were obtained from acestohigh.com. That's acestohigh.com, which is a website that is just chock full of resources. So I definitely recommend checking that out if you want to find out more. So I'm going to begin by reading this one article. If you've ever wondered why you've been struggling a little too hard or a little too long with chronic emotional and physical health conditions that just won't abate, or feeling as if you've been swimming against some invisible current that never ceases, a new field of scientific research may offer hope, answers, and healing insights. In 1995, Obviously, this article is a little older. (laughs) Physicians Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda launched a large-scale epidemiological study that probed the child and adolescent histories of 17,000 people, comparing their childhood experiences to their later adult health records. The results were shocking. Nearly two-thirds of individuals had encountered one or more adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, that term we just talked about, a term Felitti and Anda coined to encompass the chronic, unpredictable, and stress-inducing events that many children face. These include growing up with a depressed or alcoholic parent, losing a parent to divorce or other causes, or enduring chronic humiliation, emotional neglect, or sexual or physical abuse. These forms of emotional trauma went beyond the typical everyday challenges of growing up. The number of childhood experiences an individual had predicted the amount of medical care she required as an adult with surprising accuracy. Say, individuals who had faced 
four or more categories of ACEs were twice as likely to be diagnosed with cancer as individuals who hadn't experienced childhood adversity. For each ACE score a woman had, her risk of being hospitalized with an autoimmune disease rose by 20%. Someone with an ACE score of 4 was 460% more likely to suffer from depression than someone with an ACE score of 0. An ACE score greater than or equal to 6 shortened an individual's lifespan by almost 20 years. And so, like we said, you can take that ACE survey to find out what your score is, and a good place to find that survey is on aces2high.com. And it is 10 questions. The ACE study tells us that experiencing chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress in childhood predisposes us to a constellation of chronic conditions in adulthood. But why? Today, in labs across the country, neuroscientists are peering into the once inscrutable brain-body connection and breaking down on a biochemical level exactly how the stress we face when we're young catches up with us when we're adults, altering our bodies, our cells, and even our DNA. What they found may surprise you. Some of these scientific findings can be a little overwhelming to contemplate. They compel us to take a new look at how emotional and physical pain are intertwined. So we're going to go over some of the uh, ways that the brain-body connection occurs. Um, So you can go ahead and start. Starting off with number one is epigenetic shifts. When we're thrust over and over again into stress-inducing situations during childhood or adolescence, our physiological stress response shifts into overdrive, and we lose the ability to respond appropriately and effectively to future stressors 10, 20, even 30 years later. This happens due to the process known as gene methylation, in which small chemical markers or Methyl groups adhere to the genes involved in regulating our stress response and prevent those genes from doing response becomes reset on high for life, uh, promoting inflammation and disease. This can make us more likely to overreact in everyday stressors we meet in our adult life. An unexpected bill, a disagreement with a spouse, or a car that swerves in front of us on the highway and creates more inflammation. This, in turn, predisposes us to a host of chronic conditions, including autoimmune diseases, heart disease, cancer, and depression. Indeed, Yale researchers recently found that children who faced chronic toxic stress show changes across the entire genome in genes that not only oversee the stress response, but also in genes implicated in a wide array of adult diseases. This new research on early emotional trauma, epigenetic changes, and adult physical disease break down long-standing barriers between what the medical community has long seen as physical disease versus what is mental or emotional. It also impacts the size and shape of the brain. I say this all the time (laughs) because I know that chronic pain can shrink your brain, so it only makes sense that scientists have found 
When the developing brain is chronically stressed, it releases a hormone that actually shrinks the size of the hippocampus, an area of our brain responsible for processing emotion and memory and managing stress. Recent magnetic resonance imaging, MRI studies, suggest that the higher an individual's ACE score, the less gray matter he or she has in other key areas of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex, an area related to decision-making and self-regulatory skills. Number three is neural pruning. Children have an overabundance of neurons and synaptic connections. Their brains are hard at work trying to make sense of the world around them. Until recently, scientists believed that the pruning of excess neurons and connections were achieved solely in a use-it-or-lose-it manner. But a surprising new player in brain development has appeared on the scene. Non-neuronal brain cells, known as microglia, which make up one-tenth of all the cells in the brain, are actually part of the immune system, participating in the pruning process. These cells prune synapses like a gardener prunes a hedge. They also engulf and digest entire cells and cellular debris, thereby playing an essential housekeeping role. But when a child faces unpredictable chronic stress of adverse childhood experiences, these cells can get really worked up and crank out neurochemicals that lead to neuroinflation, says Dr. Margaret McCarthy, whose research team at the University of Maryland Medical Center studies the developing brain. She goes on to say, This below-the-radar state of chronic neural inflammation can lead to changes that reset the tone of the brain for life. That means that kids who come into adolescence with a history of adversity and lack the presence of a consistent, loving adult to help them through it may become more likely to develop mood disorders or have poor executive functioning and decision-making skills. That is just so sad. It really is. Um, so the next one is tele. I hope I'm pronouncing the next one correctly. Telomeres. Um, so early trauma can make children seem older emotionally than their peers. Don't I know about that, right? <laughs> um, now scientists at Duke University, the University of California. San Francisco, and Brown University have discovered that adverse childhood experiences may prematurely age children on a cellular level as well. Adults who faced early trauma showed greater erosion in what are known as telomeres, the protective caps that sit on the ends of DNA strands, like the caps on shoelaces, to keep the genome healthy and intact. As our telomeres erode, we're more likely to develop disease and our cells age faster. Wow. I did not know that that one blew my mind a little that bit. One, that one is pretty wild. Um, this fifth one, uh, default node network, this is one that really spoke to me. Inside each of our brains, a network of neurocircuitry known as the default mode network quietly hums along like a car idling in a driveway. It unites areas of the brain associated with memory and thought integration, and it's always on standby, ready to help us figure out what we need to do next. The dense connectivity in these areas of the brain help us to determine what's relevant or not, 
so that we can be ready for whatever our environment is going to ask of us, explains Dr. Ruth Lanius, a neuroscientist, professor of psychiatry and director of the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Research Unit at the University of Ontario. But when children... That's what it very much is. I was like, that was a hard one getting out. Um, but when children face early adversity and are routinely thrust into a state of fight or flight, the default mode network starts to go offline. It's no longer helping them figure out what's relevant or what they need to do next. Uh, according to Lenius, uh, kids who faced early trauma have less connectivity in the default mode network, even decades after the trauma occurred. Their brains don't seem to enter that healthy idling position. And so they may have trouble reacting appropriately to the world around them. Mm. Wow. So the brain body pathway is the next connection. Um, Until recently, it's been scientifically accepted that the brain is immune privileged or cut off from the body's immune system. But that turns out not to be the case, according to a groundbreaking study conducted by researchers at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Researchers found that an elusive pathway travels between the brain and the immune system via lymphatic vessels. The lymphatic system, which is part of the circulatory system, carries lymph, a liquid that helps to eliminate toxins and moves immune cells from one part of the body to another. Now we know that the immune system pathway includes the brain. The results of this study have profound implications for ACE research. For a child who's experienced adversity, the relationship between mental and physical suffering is strong. The inflammatory chemicals that flood a child's body when she's chronically stressed aren't confined to the body alone. They're shuttled from head to toe. I'm so freaking happy that they're finally acknowledging this connection because, you know, let me tell you, let me tell you, husband of mine, who's been right next to me during all of these struggles, trying to get my health issues taken seriously. But um, it's so, I'm so glad that they're finally like really talking about this. It's really important. Uh, Anyway, go, go on, dear sir, go on. I've even worked for doctors who have even said like, oh, I, I, I'm hiring you because I don't want a lot of stress in my life because stress is what killed my dad or, or stress is what, you know, caused this to happen in, in my life. Yet it's taken all this time for them to recognize how important mental health and stress is towards physical well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on, our last and final one. Um, <laughs> is uh, brain connectivity. Um, I hope I get this name right, and I very much apologize if I get it wrong, coming from someone whose name is chronically mispronounced. Um, But Dr. Ryan Haringa, a neuropsychiatrist and assistant professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin, found that children and teens who experienced chronic childhood adversity showed weaker neural connections between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Girls also displayed weaker connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. The prefrontal cortex-amygdala relationship plays an essential role in determining how emotionally reactive we're likely to be 
to the things that happen to us in our day-to-day life and how likely we are to perceive these events as stressful or dangerous. According to Oringa, if you are a girl who has had adverse childhood experiences and these brain connections are weaker, you might expect that in just about any stressful situation you encounter as life goes on, you may experience a greater level of fear and anxiety. Girls with these weakened neurological connections, Eringa found, stood at a higher risk for developing anxiety and depression by the time they reached late adolescence. This may, in part, explain why females are nearly twice as likely as males to suffer from late mood disorders. So, to recap, and moving on to the next article, which we won't be reading so extensively, but we will be touching on all the important parts. Trauma can affect your brain's emotion networks to make you overreact or underreact to stressful situations. Trauma creates fixed neural networks that are isolated from other parts of your brain and resistant to change. Avoidance behaviors and trying to suppress trauma doesn't work and can create more damage. Seeking psychotherapy, meditating, doing yoga, and taking medication can all help make your brain more flexible. And of course, what medication works for you might not work for someone else. We are not a, we're not here to support or shame anyone who uses pharmaceuticals because honestly whatever you need to to use that's what we think you should use (laughs) no very much Um, we're not here to uh to dictate anything we're just here to kind of help give everyone all the information that's available so they can make their own choices right i mean we're we're when i say we're i mean you and i individually we as a society we are learning and unlearning so many things about trauma. And I mean, I feel like every time I dig into this topic, I learn something new. Um, so moving on, um, if you suffer from post-traumatic stress, you will likely overuse some parts of your brain and underuse others. Uh, the parts of your brain involved in monitoring for signs of danger and anticipating what could go wrong are overused. Because experiencing severe trauma can shut down other systems not involved in emergency responding, it is also likely that parts of your brain that are involved in enjoying the moment, celebrating your own successes, pursuing positive goals, relaxing, feeling gratitude or awe, or bonding securely with other people are underutilized. Right, and trauma keeps your brain stuck in the past. If you have PTSD, for example... When you feel triggered by an emotionally upsetting or physically taxing situation, you rapidly enter a state of fight, flight, or freeze, which I'm sure everyone listening has heard of some version of that. You might react with rage, run away, or shut down. This is the result of ancient brain and nervous system wiring related to survival. As a result, certain groups of neurons, those related to survival functions, may over time connect more strongly with each other while becoming more isolated from the rest of the brain. And this can lead to kind of to a kind of rigidity in which the triggering of one part of a neural network makes it more likely that the whole set of neurons will be activated. 
These networks can become stuck in a pattern and resist taking in new information. Yeah, that's right. Also, traumas make your strengths and coping tools harder to access. Uh, Weaker connections between neurons in a brain network may make it harder for your brain to perform certain functions, such as concentrating on a task without interruption or inhibiting unhelpful thought patterns or destructive impulses. Unprocessed trauma memories are thought to be stored in your brain in a way that is disconnected from the overall context. When triggered, they don't connect fully to the fact that your present is different from your past and that you have different abilities and choices now than you did then. When you're triggered into a trauma state, you may not be able to connect with or utilize the strengths and resiliencies you can exercise in other contexts. The part of your brain that helps you assert yourself, calm down negative thinking, regulate emotions, make mindful choices, or realistically evaluate risks and reward may not have a strong enough connection to the raw trauma memory to be able to calm things down and redirect. Neuroplasticity means that your brain can learn new, more helpful patterns. Traumas in childhood can affect the brain into adulthood. Yet your brain neurons have plasticity, which means they can continue to be changed by new experiences, even into adulthood and old age. You can learn to rewire your brain by making small changes repeated over and over again. You can practice new ways of thinking, new ways of making room for your feelings, and new ways of behaving that are more that are more proactive and less avoidant, even though I can tell you from experience that avoidant behavior can be so comfortable. (laughs) It's just the absolute best. So much more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just, it's a lot more comfortable, or at least you think it, I think it's more comfortable in the the moment. (laughs) But it's not, it's not always the healthiest, um, well, no, because it sticks with you. Because in the moment, you're like, oh, man, I'm avoiding this jams. And then the next thing you know is you're stressed out about it all over again. So it's it's like a catch-22. Yeah. I know, right? It's self-sabotage or something like that. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something like that. <sighs> yes. And even this article points out that the new habits seem weak in comparison to your wired in you're wired in responses. That's so true because I know I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. Just trying to train my brain like to think differently. And a lot of times, you know, there's a part of my brain that's going, uh, yeah, I don't know about this. I don't think so. Like this is BS. Um, and like this article says, you may be tempted to think that they don't work and stop using them. But if you persevere, the neurons underlying these new habits will begin to get stronger. Perhaps you'll be able to cope better with mild and moderate stress without being triggered. If you keep going for many months or years, even the severe triggering will begin to calm down as new network connections are built and strengthened. It's like, see, that's the obvious right there. Seeing it in print, I know that that is... In fact, the better way to go about things. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Um, avoidance uh, perpetuates trauma-based patterns. Uh, facing fears helps you unlearn them. You may try to put your trauma memories and feelings into a mental box so you can avoid looking at them, 
Uh, you can try to get on with everyday life as the trauma never happened and don't deal with it. You may drink alcohol or abuse other substances to support anxiety or escape difficult feelings. You become sexually compulsive or sexually avoidant. You can go in both directions. You may overwork, overeat, for emotional reasons, become obsessed with thinness or exercise compulsively. Although these strategies can work to suppress feelings for a while, uh, they create new problems and can damage your health and self-esteem. They also don't work to suppress trauma permanently. Uh, eventually, those trauma feelings break through. Sometimes a new stressor like being rejected in a relationship or being laid off from work can trigger them. A physical illness can make you feel weaker and more vulnerable like you did at the time of the trauma. You may overwork so as not to deal with the trauma, but eventually face burnout. Life changes like having a child, a relationship breakup, being laid off from a job, or the death of a parent may trigger old trauma-related feelings. Loneliness may bring out old feelings of being unworthy and unwanted. If avoidance doesn't work, then what's the alternative? Seeking therapy for your trauma is the best option. A trained professional can help you face your trauma in a controlled way and with support. Some therapies that are recommended for trauma include somatic therapy, EMDR, which is talked about in our next segment briefly, cognitive behavioral therapy or internal family system therapy, doing regular yoga, meditating, having a healthy exercise practice, or taking medication like antidepressants can enhance the effects of therapy. The most important goal is to develop a mindset of approach rather than avoidance. You need to learn to approach difficult feelings and situations like conflict or intimacy in a mindful way at your own pace. Trauma gives you an all or nothing mindset. A gradual strategic approach is the antidote. And that is so true because um, I know that I jumped, I jumped to the worst possible outcome all the time. So it's something that I'm learning a lot <laughs> as I get older. It's something that you, avoidance leads to more stressful situations as we already talked about, but it also, you know, deals with it makes your problems worse really <laughs> there is no way to put it other than that but following this segment we will have a segment with dr rebecca siegel who is a board certified adult child and adolescent psychiatrist and she um, will talk about psychological side of this and she also will give some tips on how cannabis can help kind of repair your brain, so to speak. So thank you for joining me for this segment, JR. And we hope that you all learned something and that you will continue to learn throughout this B-Side series. And until next time, stay high and beautiful. Bye. Bye. Today we'll be talking about the intersection of brain health, and trauma. And today I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Siegel, who will be expanding on the topic a bit more. But before we start, a simple content warning. We will be discussing trauma. Dr. Siegel, can you explain how trauma impacts the brain? I guess 
we should be more specific, right? <laughs> Not physical sure. trauma, but something more along right. the lines like of PTSD. Trauma, PTSD. So absolutely, and just understand that anyone can develop trauma. We often think of it with vets, you know, and things like that. But absolutely anybody who's gone through a physical assault or a sexual assault or abuse or an accident or disaster, things like that. I mean, you know, anybody can develop PTSD or trauma. Um, but so um, studies that have been done have, been, have found that PTSD, you know, experiencing these types of, of symptoms can absolutely change your brain and the brain, your brain circuitry. And so what, like, what are the, if the, the important parts of the brain to understand about, like, what, you know, in how PTSD impacts your brain? Well, first, the area of the, the, the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that deals with sort of fear and emotion, and the right, and then there's the prefrontal cortex, which is like the decision-making area, and it regulates sort of, it regulates the amygdala, the, that, you know, regulating the emotional responses, and also the hippocampus, which is, um, it controls sort of memory and, and, and learning, and so these things are absolutely impacted by trauma, so the amygdala, that emotion and fear um, area of the brain, that actually may become very overactive, right, and, and then that is, you know, should be mediated by or helped by the prefrontal cortex, right? The decision-making area, but that area can actually get more underactive so that it's not able to mediate it, right? The, that response, that fear response, right? So if you have this over, very overactive fear response and not enough of the, um, like being able to um, control the impulses and, and, and regulate, you know, the, that emotional, you know, your emotional um, feelings, that can be very, that can lead to, you know, really feeling very, very, I don't know, like um, feeling the, the fight or flight, the panic, um, definitely um, hypervigilance and, you know, all that, all those kind of things, right? right? Um, and then the, the hippocampus as the, the memory and learning that actually can be impacted by, you might not be really be able to sort of remember important details about the trauma, right? Um, that can, that, um, you know, like, it, because the it might change and actually become sort of slightly smaller. So that so all those three things are sort of the fear circuitry that might get sort of kicked off by a a you know a severe trauma. Wow. I mean, I know it affected your memory, but thinking about it that way, that that kind of just opened it up another door for me, my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, all but I mean, look, you know, all areas of the brain are kind of like they work yeah. together, and they are all you know many are you know, they, they're impacted, right? And you need sort of the right, like, balance or, you know, you want to keep your brain in homeostasis, right? right? Yeah, speaking of which, um, can we talk about how people can heal the damage on the brain through a holistic approach? Sure. Well, there's all kinds of, um, you know, of options for, you know, brain healing and, and dealing with, you know, PTSD and past trauma. Um, first of all, there's, um, a very specific kind of therapy called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization response therapy, right? And that absolutely, you know, requires a trained therapist who knows how to do EMDR. Um, there's also things like neurofeedback, um, which also requires somebody trained, but that can change the, your brain patterns to have you, you know, toxic brain patterns become more, um, you know, healthy patterns. Um, things like yoga, mindfulness, things like of course, I always want to talk about sort of, you know, uh, 
like just healthy overall brain and body things like you know healthy diet and nutrition that's really really important um but and sleep you know if like if your sleep is impacted um you know like you're gonna like you're not gonna feel good and like especially because a lot of people who struggle with PTSD and you know and past trauma have a lot of trouble with insomnia um and you know and trying to get back into healthier sleep patterns when with you know in, in a that's easy to say and harder to do but definitely um you know there's all kinds of ways to to look at that into you know trying to improve sleep like use, using more holistic therapies like um things like gaba or you know these are you know like the nutritional supplements kind of thing gaba or valerian or melatonin yep. 5htp um, you know, things l-theanine oh yes i started taking that too that that's, helps a lot that, <laughs> well, that's the other thing is that absolutely you want to um sort of improve the serotonin response the 5-htp areas of the brain yeah absolutely absolutely awesome. um so are there certain terpenes or cannabinoids that help more than others in terms of trauma care and obviously you can include physical too in this part because i think that both of them kind of apply. well so yeah so let's talking about cannabis overall, you know, as a, um, and, and definitely a lot of people are interested in this option for dealing with PTSD. And actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a um, psychiatrist in New York City, or like, so I, you know, I'm aware, aware of, you know, New York State yeah. and New York City. And when medical cannabis, you know, was legalized, um, one of the first conditions on the, you know, was PTSD. Right. Lots of people, um, you know, will look to have looked to it as an option to help with PTSD. But so, yeah. So what do I recommend? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, you want to this is, you know, going in my mind, sort of if people have not tried it before cannabis and, you know, they they are thinking of it as an option. You definitely you will. <laughs> you know, this is you want to be informed right about what you're doing. And a lot of people just have no clue. You want you know, that's why I say we'll always try to to um, find somebody who can help you, like, a, you know, a physician who is aware or a medical health professional who's aware of it. And especially, you know, I, I in my mind, doing this medically, like, you know, like a medical dispensary is a much safer way of doing it, um, you know, and reaching out and asking for help. Not every physician knows, you know, what cannabis is and how to and how to recommend it. You know, I happen to be a certified prescriber of medical cannabis in New York state. So what I would, what I would suggest is definitely you want in my mind to start low, go slow, but thinking about a higher ratio of like CBD to THC, certainly to start. Um, and I know that the sort of, I'm not in my research, I was doing research also. So like, you know, you, you want to get the, the, the full spectrum, you want to, you want to get a full spectrum product. Right. Um, which, you know, would, would allow for the entourage effect, right? So you're getting all the, um, the, the cannabinoids and terpenes that are in, you know, in cannabis. And th like in my, through my research, I, you know, I was looking into three specific terpenes, right? That can be helpful that um, limonene, myrcene, and herophylline are three that might be very helpful. <laughs> Those are my favorite. <laughs> Your favorite <yes>. three? <laughs> 
unfortunately, my therapist doesn't understand cannabis yet, or the one I was going to. I was actually having to explain it to her. And so I wonder, what should people do in that situation? If they already have an established relationship with a therapist or a psychiatrist who isn't 100% on board, or they just don't have the information, um, but they're very interested in pursuing that as a treatment option, like, how would you suggest that conversation go? Well, I, I definitely think it's very important to be, you know, to be open and transparent about what you're, what you're doing to, to help improve, you know, your emotional and psychological health, right? So absolutely explain it for sure. Ask if they are aware how, and, you know, and if they, if they are fantastic, um, but right. But if they're not, I mean, there are a lot of ways for, you know, like men, you know, mental health practitioners and therapists to actually educate themselves, right? Like, you know, there are, there are courses on, online or things like that. Um, you know, that's something to think about. There are books. I wrote a book. Yeah, you did. I was going to mention <laughs> I, your book. Right? I wrote a book yep. called the brain, the brain on cannabis, right? What you should, what you should know about recreational and medical marijuana. That's my book. So yes. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways, but yes, it, and unfortunately there are a lot of, um, you know, people, are, who we would hope that would, would be aware and educated about it are not. You know, I certainly did not get a lot of, I got no education in med school or residency or fellowship. Right. You know, and I, I absolutely had to start educating myself when my patients came to me and asked right. about it. Yeah. My therapist said she didn't know how to parse the information. And I'm like, I can't help you with that. I can just give you the information. Like, I don't know. You know, I... <laughs> I, maybe I didn't either, but I was curious. And yeah. I also, you know, I, like the first tenet of medicine is first do no harm. And I, if I knew that my patient was yeah. interested in doing this and, and also if I was prescribing any kind of medication, you know, did, did it have interactions with the, the you know, with, with the medication? Um, you know, I wanted to know more. And so I could, if she was thinking about it, you know, there were others. So I wanted to be as educated as I could be to help people. That You're my kind of doctor. <laughs> See, it's very hard to find doctors like that. Well, I, I try. I try. There are, there are definitely more of us and, you know, that people are, are people, including doctors and, you know, all medical professionals are, are definitely, um, you know, starting to come on board with it and, and at least learning about it. Yeah. Because it's out there. It's not going away. It's, right. You know, it's legalizing in so many ways, adult use and medical. You know, what's the point? I would, I always, I want to understand things. I don't want to be clueless about things so I can help. Yeah. It's put very simply, but I don't see it that often. And I'm glad that people exist like you because it gives me hope. Um, so long-term, how do you think plant medicine can help a trauma survivor thrive? Oh, I, I think that, I mean, if, if the brain can change, um, you know, with trauma, the brain can also heal from trauma. Our brains are neurotropic, right? So meaning that means we're, your brain, our brains are making new connections, growing, healing, um, developing, you know, throughout our lifetimes. They're, the brain is maturing to, until your mid-20s, mm -hmm. right? So that's why you want to be very, you want to be aware of like not, you, you know, like, subjecting your brain to toxic substances, but you definitely want to know that throughout your lifetime, this is an incredible and wonderful thing about our brains is that they heal. Yeah. And so, um, you know, 
plant medicine, holistic medicine, if they if they can heal these areas of the brain that have been you know been traumatized, literally, um, that's a huge wonderful thing. I just you know, and as along with all along with everything else, yeah, you know, like our our overall brain health. We say brain and body health, right? right? You know, good and good healthy nutrition and diets. You know, health, healthy sleep patterns, increasing your exercise, right? You know, practicing mindfulness. Yoga is a wonderful thing. All right. these kind of things. Therapy, if needed. Sure. All these kind of things will absolutely help your brain to heal. Yeah. You don't want, you can't just do use the cannabis or plant medicine as your only method of healing, but it can do a lot to help the process. It's a, I say it's a piece of the puzzle. It's an option. Right. People want and need options. Yes. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, so before we go, I know you mentioned your book, but can you mention it again and where people can find it and find you? Yes, it's called The Brain on Cannabis, What You Should Know About Recreational and Medical Marijuana. And it is on Amazon, but um, it, you can also there's a link to it on my website, which is um, www.rebeccasegalmd. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And please come back on any other time. (laughs) Great to be here. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at Your Highness Podcast or on Twitter at Highness Podcast. Be sure to rate us on iTunes and subscribe.